This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome back to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. A little bit of Rolling Stones there from back in 1968 to set us up for uh, our next conversation because the year 1968 was one of the more amazing and strife-filled years in the history of our country. You had struggles at home over race and culture. You had the Vietnam War. You had the growth of television who actually allowed things like the Vietnam War to come into the homes of most Americans. And it was also what ended up being the final year as president for Lyndon Johnson. He started out after the stunning death of President Kennedy and brought forth the Great Society, but the year 1968 was seen as one of his most challenging. Arizona State University professor Kyle Longley looks back at that year through the eyes of Johnson in his new book, LBJ's 1968, Power, Politics, and the Presidency in America's Year of Upheaval. And it's a pleasure to have Kyle Longley with us here today. Kyle, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. In reading some of the backstory on this, I guess this was a, a, a story that pretty much hit close to home to you. You're a Texan and kind of grew up near uh, LBJ's farm, correct? Yes, that is correct. I used to drive by there. It was only about 20 miles from where I was uh, when I was like in elementary school. My father uh, was a football coach there in Texas, so we would travel those back roads to all the games, and we'd pass by the ranch all the time. Well, Lynn, let me ask you this. What were, what were the things that you heard about LBJ as you were growing up? Well, you know, I don't really remember because I hate to admit this, but in 1968, I was only five. Right, uh, right. So, you know, there was a lot uh, there. You know, my parents typically just said, you know, that's the president's house uh, or the president's ranch. And, you know, at that time, there was so much turmoil going on. Uh, when I started uh, hitting a political age, uh, you know, uh, and it was Watergate, and then it was the years of the Carter administration and all the problems that we had with Iran, those are when I started to hit sort of political maturity. So Johnson really didn't raise a, a lot of those issues. But where I did talk about this is I lived in Austin for three years, and right. you couldn't go anywhere without the uh, Johnson legacy being seen, whether it be Lake Ladybird, the library, uh, you know, the lakes that supply the water to the area. There's so many different things, the rural electrification uh, so Johnson's imprint in that area was very strong. So uh, when you, as I mentioned, obviously there were so many things going on in, in 1968. Uh, in in the accounts that you have found out, what was what? How did he deal with it? Because I mean, you had on the home front, and you obviously had overseas so many different avenues that that he had to deal with as president. Well, uh, you know, I give him credit where credit is due. I think he handled situations like the Pueblo quite well in yeah. dealing with North Korea. I think he handled the Czechoslovakian crisis quite well. How he handled the assassinations of Martin Luther King and the riots that followed, I think he did uh, very well. Same with the handling of Robert Kennedy's assassination. Yeah. Now, I do think that he did fail miserably a lot of times, and it always seemed to relate to Vietnam whether it's undermining Humphrey at the Democratic National Convention, where Humphrey had worked out a compromise plank that probably would have offset a lot of the problems that developed at the convention. Uh, you know, it, but it always seemed to be that major issue of Vietnam. Well, and, right. And, and I think a lot of people have, have still today, in many cases, will ask the question, uh, why did we not pull out of Vietnam earlier than we did? Well, you know, it was a credibility issue. Uh, Johnson, you know, was determined not to be the first president to lose a war. 
He'd been put in a uh, pretty bad situation by Kennedy, who had escalated the yeah. issues in Vietnam, who had you know signed off on the assassination of No Dinh Zem, uh, which led to the crisis of a constant term, turnover of leadership in Saigon. So you know he inherited a bad situation, one that he didn't want, but then he didn't make it any better. And the escalation was again to defend himself from being accused of being the first American president to lose a war. And that credibility issue played a significant role. And there's a great quote by George Reedy in the book that I talk about where he argues Johnson was never a man that could admit a mistake. And that plays a significant role, his personality and not being able to pull out quicker. You mentioned, obviously, the the, the two assassinations that, that occurred that really kind of rocked the country, uh, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy that year. And take us through that period of time, because you're talking about Basically, within, what, a three-month span, uh, both of those gentlemen who were very well-known and, and very uh, well-accepted by portions of the United States public uh, were both killed. Yeah. And, you know, it's just this whole idea. Johnson called the year a year of a continuous nightmare because it was one thing after another after another. And the assassinations are sort of cappers to it. Uh, and, you know, I had a piece just recently published in Newsweek last week on the Johnson's uh, response to the King assassination. And yeah. just talking about the whole idea of, you know, him trying to understand and trying to uh, sort of empathize with those people out in the streets rioting after uh, the assassination of King and him going through the order of saying something like, you know, I understand why they feel the rage. I understand why they and we got to do more. But unfortunately, he was running into a recalcitrant uh, Congress, not willing to do much more, especially on that, uh, you know, the level of, uh, you know, civil rights. And Bobby's uh, assassination just coming on the uh, heels of that two months later, just sort of through the country. And it just sort of indicated to many people the country was coming apart at the seams. And, you know, that just contributes to a cynicism uh, that has been sort of put in place by Vietnam. And, you know, like I say, it just appears in a downward spiral. And it's just, you know, anytime anyone says to me, oh, it was so much better back when, I just joke with them and say, oh, yeah, 1968 was a year we really want to go back to. Yeah, right. That's that's like the last thing you want to think of. You, you mentioned the, the Democratic National Convention, uh, but, but also in that same time frame, and you talk about it in the book, uh, was also the— uh, uh, the uh, the the control taken over by Russia b- involving Czechoslovakia, and right. and that was I mean that's still today. Uh, every time you see something happen in that part of the, the world, somebody invariably refers back to that period of time and and what happened in that country back in 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 August. Well, yeah, and you know, and then the echoes of Hungary in 1956 always play yeah. out. Yeah, and I think we see that play out. You know, in the Ukraine, uh, all the different areas the Russians right now are sort of trying to probe. Uh, today. And that's the thing I think the book really brings out is there's a lot resonating today, whether it be race rights in places like Ferguson to the Supreme Court nomination battle over Abe Fortas, which resonates with the Garland Merritt uh, case and even foreign collusion in our elections. So a lot of that is resonating today. And Czechoslovakia was one that, you know, Johnson basically felt powerless. You know, when his uh, chief of the um, Joint Chiefs comes and says, you know, there's nothing we can do because we're overextended, uh, you know, he just basically has to sit back and watch the Russians just crush the What, what did he want to do? 
I, you know, I don't think he, he, he might have wanted to uh, make a stronger, forceful statement, but the problem is he had also been in the Senate in 1956 when the Russians crushed the Hungarians. Yeah. You had the Eisenhower administration sort of prompting them and saying, oh, yeah, do it. We'll come to your aid. And then, you know, nothing happened and they got crushed. So he was very cognizant of not doing that because he knew two things would happen. One, they'd get crushed. Two, it would play right into the Soviets' uh, propaganda machine that, yes, the West was the one ferment this uh, revolt. But it was also a period of time, and, and this goes a little bit back to the Vietnam War, uh, where here in the United States, you had so much uprising about uh, from the anti-war movement. And, and I think uh, to a degree, that's something that uh, probably didn't sit well with Johnson and probably maybe, I, I would guess, maybe even caught him off guard a little bit because wars and going to war had almost become part of our culture when you think of World War One and then World War Two and then Korea and then Vietnam, yeah, but I think you know, if, if, as a historian, we always look at the longer durée of this. And you know, for example, in World War One, there was a lot of people who opposed uh, the. You know, five hundred thousand men refused to show up for induction. Korea became a very unpopular war, and in fact, it forced Harry Truman out. Uh, he could have run for another. Uh, you know, term. And ironically, when Johnson announces on March 31st, uh, 1968, he's not going to seek re-election. Yeah. Truman had announced on March 29th, uh, 1952, that he would not seek re-election. So there's a, a, a amazing similarity there. So, it, but World War II just sort of hangs over everything. That's the good war. And, you know, we're going to support the president no matter what. But, you know, in Vietnam, it just fell apart very quickly. Was and, was well I'm, sorry. well, I'm sorry. Was Johnson ever really close to running for re-election uh, in '68? Yes, I believe so. I mean, I, I talk about this, and I think one of the best chapters in the book is that one day of March 31st, where he's making the decision whether he's going to seek re-election or not. Yeah. And they ask him the question, or he later is asked the question: When did you make your decision uh, on whether to uh, really announce your, uh, you know, that you were not going to seek re-election? And the speech started at nine o'clock, nine nine p.m. And he says, "Well, nine o one p.m." <laughs> yeah, that that's that's pretty decisive at that point. Yeah, we are talking with Kyle Longley, who is the author of the book LBJ's nineteen sixty eight Power Politics and the Presidency in America's Year of Upheaval. Your comments welcome at eight four four Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio one eleven or my Twitter account which is at DanLoney21. Uh, what was his relationship like with Richard Nixon? Uh, it, it's a very contentious one, but very complex. And probably the best chapter to sort of take a feel for this is, of course, the one on the Chenault Affair, where the Nixon campaign is actively working with the yep. South Vietnamese government to undermine the peace process in Paris. And you sort of see the complexities and the nuances of that. And probably one of the most famous scenes in that chapter is when Nixon calls Johnson to deny that he has any responsibility. And Johnson has him dead to rights as far as knowing his campaign. Now, whether Nixon himself was actively involved, we don't know for sure. But we know the campaign was working uh, through Anna Chennault to undermine the peace process, as well as several other channels. And that tape, which you can get online either at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia or at the LBJ Library, is just fascinating. Uh, Johnson knows he has him dead to rights because Chenault, uh they bugged her house, uh, bugged her mm-hmm. apartment at the Watergate and also bugged the South Vietnamese embassy. And they know what's going on, and they know the Nixon people are involved. And he's got the tapes, and he's got the transcripts from the FBI. 
and listening to them in that um, you know conversation of how Johnson is displaying him to a, a degree uh, is important. But Johnson ultimately decided not to let the news out, uh, and you know it, Nixon held on. So there's it's it's very complex. Johnson actually liked Nixon's pr- uh, proposals on Vietnam when he did Humphreys. Uh, but, you know, in the long run, it was Johnson did finally come around to supporting Humphrey a little more fully. But at many junctures, he was either noncommittal or undermined Humphrey. What, is, what was the role of Lady Bird Johnson during this period of time? Obviously not on the necessarily on the global scale, but even just within, the, you know, within the White House and, and trying to, I guess, be supportive of her husband. Well, to me, uh, and one of the best document or the best things you can read for this period is her diary. Yeah, uh, and it's called the White House Diary. It's transcribed, and it is wonderful because she is sort of the steadying force in the uh, Johnson White House. She's the one that when Lyndon's off on a tangent or something like that, she brings him back, and she's always there. She's that steadying, calm influence, and so. If you read her diary, you get some great insights into the whole period from 63 to 69. And, um, again, steady is the way I would characterize her. The one She's sort of the one that brings things and keeps them grounded. We're talking with Kyle Longley, the author of the book LBJ's 1968. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. You know, it's interesting when you when you think about Vietnam and Czechoslovakia and, and seemingly the president has the opportunity to be able to use the military to uh, to, to kind of squash out as much of of this as they possibly can. It's not necessarily the case going on here in the United States with all of all of the unrest that happened here, whether it be surrounding uh, the, the, the issues with uh, whites and blacks in the country, whether it be uh, surrounding the anti-war movement. I would imagine that that piece, at least uh, from here in the United States, had to take an unbelievable toll on him because he, he, to a degree, needed to just let all of this stuff play out. Well, and that's hard for someone like him. But what I argue in the book is you see that Johnson is very different from what he was in 1963. He's grown. He's more mature. Uh, and he is, uh, you know, less rash, I guess, would be a good way to characterize it. And you're right. It's frustrating. But, you know, he's frustrated on an international basis because look how it's going in Vietnam. Look, He's incapacitated to a large degree in Czechoslovakia. The North Koreans have 82 hostages, and there's not much he can do, um, you know, when they seize the Pueblo. So, you know, I think he largely recognizes many uh, better by 1968 the limitations on the power of the presidency. So he does have to play, let it play out. But, you know, uh, for example, uh, when he has to order in federal troops after the yeah. assassination of King, he makes sure that they're ordered not to fire on people he, and, you know, not to take out uh, a frustration. Uh, and he gets criticized for that, for being too lenient on the rioters and the protesters. And, you know, I, uh, I think it was uh, one of the uh, birds, I think the one from West Virginia, made a comment to him, why aren't you giving them uh, uh, bullets and letting them at least shoot them in the leg? Don't shoot the kids, but shoot the uh, other riders in the legs. And, you know, he's just trying to find that middle ground um, and respecting, you know, again, to a degree, empathizing with those that are frustrated and angry. But at the same time, not let a bloody civil war break out, largely related to race. So, it, it, as you say, by, by 68, he had grown and he had matured. 
if he had run again and and if he had won, uh, would we have? Would you think he would have even with that level of pride? Do you think he would have gotten out of Vietnam? I think so. I mean, I think the, uh, he was committed to that. I mean, when he first proposes the San Antonio formula in August of 1967, he's taking the steps. The key is the North Vietnamese. You've got to have them participate right. in the process. And when they get their nose bloodied in Tet, uh, while a tactical defeat you know, it turns out to be a strategic victory, when they get their nose bloodied, that's when they come to the bargaining table. Do I think they would have continued at the ra- route uh, that they did? Probably. Uh, but would Johnson have escalated like Nixon did into Cambodia and Laos? Likely not. And you might have seen 20,000 less or 21,000 less Americans die in Vietnam as a result. So I think he was committed to it by that point. Uh, when he sends his sons to uh, or son-in-laws to Vietnam, that changes some of the dynamic. And, you know, the front cover of the book, I think, is one of the most powerful photos oh, yeah. you can get on Johnson. Oh, my God. You know, Boy, that, is it. You know, that's when he's listening to Chuck Robb on the tape recorder tell him about the deaths of several of his Marines in Vietnam. And, you know, the other ironic part of the photo is John, uh, Kennedy's bust in the background. It was always hovering. The ghost of John Kennedy was always hovering over Lyndon Johnson, as well as ultimately Robert Kennedy's. So, you know, I think he would have moved us further. But, you know, again, that's as a historian, we're always hesitant to do something like that because it's a historical fact. We can't prove one way or the other, but we can speculate. I do think there would have been some differences, and I don't think we would have had Watergate, for example. And, you know, that undermining of the presidency, uh, that it did occur, which still resonates with us today. When when you do a a book like this and you're looking back at history, a part of it is also the pictures that are added in, and there are some you know incredible poignant pictures in here but but the one that ca- caught my eye and and I think it it would catch a lot of people's eye is kind of later on in the book and it's a picture of LBJ and his family basically laying in bed while watching the DNC yeah yeah i mean that is uh just you know and and you know i think that chapter on the DNC the the, the part that stands out to me is how he honestly believed it might occur that they would call him to come to Chicago to uh, accept the nomination. Of course, yeah. he says he would not accept it. But, you know, that day he has his birthday on that Tuesday uh, of the convention, he's sitting there waiting for somebody to make the call to say, come up here and save us from ourselves. Yeah. And when they don't call, that's one of the saddest points, I think, of his presidency. You know, he, he's got his hopes up and then they just get crushed. And it just heightens the realization that he has lost control of his beloved Democratic Party and, to the large degree, the country. And like I say, I see it as a sad, sad sort of uh, poignant uh, position. But, yeah, they're sitting there. But, you know, again, on that day, he's hoping they're going to call him. Some people have told him that they might, and then his hopes get crushed. So how, how how do you look at the LBJ presidency as a whole, not just 1968, but the entire six year period? Well, I think, you know, you know, this is one that I've been talking about for a while now, and I'm doing a biography on the uh, president uh, in, in the future, and so I'm looking at the, the longer durée here. Uh, but, you know, you take Vietnam out of the equation, many argue he would probably go down as one of the top 10, 15 American presidents. You look at all that he accomplished in, uh, you know, Medicare, the environment, civil rights, yeah. uh, across the board, wars on uh, poverty, and, you know, of course, he's handicapped by a very conservative Congress, especially Southerners, but he still accomplishes a great deal. But Vietnam, 
you know, just takes it off the rails and leads Johnson down a rabbit hole that he never is able to pull himself out of. And, and then, obviously, you know, he's turning it over to Richard Nixon. Obviously, this is, you know, not necessarily in the book. But, again, with that relationship with Nixon uh, that you said was a little little tight at times, uh, I would imagine that even the last couple of months uh, of LBJ being in office probably was a little uneasy for him. Oh, yeah, it was very much. I mean, this is a, a political animal that had no hobbies other than raising cattle. And, yeah. you know, he, he he loved his country. He loved the office of the presidency. Uh, and he also fears that, you know, Nixon and his people are going to dismantle a lot of what he has accomplished. But, you know, this is where the resonance still goes on the day. You know, a lot of people make the argument Trump's trying to undo uh, Obama, and to a degree that's true. But if you really look at it deeply, what is being attacked are the uh, great society, Medicare, uh, civil rights, uh, the environment. I mean, there's so many things there that you can see resonating uh, NEA, NEH, uh, these are Johnson's programs, and that is what the last 50 years the conservatives have uh, tried to undermine, but they found uh, it very difficult to do because they are very popular. Great having you with us today, Kyle. Thank you very much, and all the best to, the, to you on the book. Thank you, sir, and thank you for the time. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 